Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 147, and once again, I'm someplace weird. But we're going to talk about cold weather van life. Not necessarily sleeping in a blizzard, but what do you need to do to your van to make it compatible with cold weather camping? We're also going to talk about what it means when you say OEM versus aftermarket versus rebuilt. Hello everyone, thank you very much for listening and coming back, and I'm sorry this episode is also a day late, and uh, it's just travel. Travel's just kicking my butt lately, and it's not so much the travel, it's the lack of internet access. It is, uh, it is a problem. I'm on a big modern cruise ship, Celebrity Apex, and uh, internet has been very difficult for some reason. And I'm also, you know, on vacation, so how much do I balance myself? And a lot of you are experiencing this right now, because even though we are not actually in the winter, because that starts December 21st, we are in what they call meteorological winter. And uh, it's a winter. I mean, it's cold. And it snows, and, you know, that's all you need for winter in my book. Now, I've talked about this before, but the first thing you have to do is decide whether you want to do the winterizing thing or to keep the inside of your van warm all winter because you have to make one of those choices. And yes, you can do it and undo it. Like you can winterize your van and then say you want to go out for a weekend, you can unwinterize it. That's totally legit, but you have to make a choice because if you do nothing and your van is subjected to freezing temperatures, stuff's going to break. Water expands and breaks things, and that's a big cause of erosion and a big cause of many frustrations in vans and RVs. So make that decision. Are you just going to put your van away all winter long? Totally fine if that's what you want to do, but you have to winterize. Or do you want to keep it usable? Now, I'm in that latter case. I, I, I do want to keep it usable, but I also winterize. So my van is ready to go at a moment's notice. I can head down to Florida and spend a week camping down there, or I can go up to Canada and spend a week camping there. Winter, summer, rain or shine, doesn't matter. That's how I want to do it. And here's some things I have done to make that possible. Now, in the winter, the simplest, easiest way to deal with freezing temperatures is... Yes, I know you're shocked to go south. Yes, go south. Go where the temperatures are warmer because then you won't have to worry about this stuff. And, you know, that's why Quartzsite, Arizona is so busy this time of year or Baja, California or, yes, Florida or anywhere down south. But you have to be careful because even in some of those southern places, especially in the U.S., you can run into freezing temperatures. So pay attention to this stuff because even though you think, oh, I'm in Tallahassee, I'm totally safe. Yeah, no, you can get freezing temperatures there. And while it's rare and while it's rare that it's freezing long enough to actually cause some damage, it can happen. So absolutely, this stuff is for you, too. And what you basically want to do is keep your critical components warm. Now, what are we talking about when we say critical components? In this case, it's three things. Batteries, tanks, and then as a separate category, toilets. So let's talk quickly about batteries. Can batteries freeze? Yes, but only under the most extreme conditions. And we're talking about all batteries here. So if it goes below 32 or 0 degrees Celsius for a few hours, yeah, your batteries are fine. If it's 10 degrees below zero for a week, yeah, then you might have a problem with a battery freezing. But normally that's only reserved for lead-acid batteries, the type that you would start your engine with. 
And how often have you thought about that? Now, if you live in northern Minnesota or Ontario, you've probably thought about it a lot, and you probably have a little heater for your battery that you can plug in. <laughs> that's a thing. For you folks down south, yes, there are heaters just for batteries. And that's why when you travel in the extreme north, you will see things like parking meters with electrical plugs and such. So that's a good thing to have if you're in those extreme conditions. And in some cases, you can actually kind of cheat. Uh, I know Forrestie Forrest for a while kind of ran a plug up through his grill that was able to take power from those outlets and power his whole rig. This is kind of not legitimate, but then again, no one's stopping you from doing it either. <laughs> now, lithium's a special case. Lithium batteries... They don't freeze so much, but they do act different in freezing temperatures. And what you need to know is that you should not charge lithium-ion batteries when it's below freezing, especially if it gets way below freezing. You can use them just fine, and in fact, using them can help keep them warm. But when you try to charge them at those cold temperatures, well, it kind of damages them. <laughs> So it's not a good thing. Now, the better batteries like Renogy's or Battleborns and so on will have a battery management system that will shut off charging at cold temperatures. But the value brand batteries like Ampere Time and Chins won't. They will absolutely let you charge your battery below freezing, and that's a bad thing. Now, there's two ways to handle this. One is to install a circuit that's basically a thermostat with a switch that will turn off charging. You're basically turning off your solar panels going to your battery, because that's what we're talking about here is really solar charging in the winter is where people get in trouble with batteries. Or, and this gets on to the next thing, you can get a tank heater. So RVs have had this problem forever, right? You get your standard RV, it's got these big tanks underneath it, and those tanks are filled with water, and water freezes, and you can see the problem. So a long time ago, they invented these things called pad heaters, and they're just these sticky pads, and you put them on the tank, and they have three wires that come out. One to ground, one to power, and the other is a temperature probe. That temperature probe sounds much dirtier than it is. I guess it depends on where you put it. But you just tape that on your tank. And if the temperature drops below 50, it will turn on the pad. And it doesn't make the water hot. You're not, it's not a water heater in the sense that you're going to get hot water. It just keeps the temperature of the tank above freezing. And those can be super helpful. Yes, they use power. There are lithium batteries that have their own kind of pads built in. They're self-heating lithium batteries. Well, yes, they use power too. So it ends up being about the same thing. At any rate, these things are great if you have underslung tanks you're worried about or if you have a battery that you're worried about or you don't want to use your rig for a week but you want to keep your tanks unfrozen and your batteries unfrozen. These things are pretty darn good. They're about 45 bucks. I Again, I've got terrible internet. I will try to have a link in the show notes as soon as I can. Now, the other thing is toilets, and some of this stuff is non-obvious. So, depending on what kind of a toilet system you have, you have to do different things. If you have a cassette toilet system, you're in luck, because you can use your toilet all year round, just like you do in the summer. The only thing you have to do different is not put water in it. Put windshield washer fluid in there. Nope, it's true. I've done it for years. Buy the cheapest windshield washer fluid you can. Just make sure it has a below-freezing rating on it. Sometimes down south, they'll sell you windscreen cleaner or whatever that actually doesn't have any antifreeze in it, which is methyl alcohol in this case. You want that. doesn't harm your seals, and as you flush, the antifreeze gets into the holding tank part and keeps that from freezing too. So that's the easiest thing to do there. 
Now, if you have a composting toilet, a so-called composting toilet, because again, composting toilets do not compost anything, you have a problem of your liquids bottle and your solids container freezing. And depending on the design of your toilet, that can be a big problem. Now, to solve the liquids freezing part, you can just pour some antifreeze or a washer fluid again into that bottle and you'll have lower capacity, but you won't have to worry about it freezing. That's a pretty simple thing to do. And heck, it'll turn it green. But the solids is much more important. Now, solids part will not freeze unless it's really, really cold for a really long time. So this would be something like you went out for a weekend and forgot to empty it and then came back two weeks later. And what you end up with is just a big ice block of waste. And if you have the kind of composting toilet that you need to churn your waste, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. And the fix for that is is simply you have to warm that up until it gets not frozen again. And it probably won't break anything. That's the nice thing. But it's something to think about. You, because you are also a critical component, staying warm versus staying comfortable. This is a good concept to get in your mind when you're going to do any kind of van life is you're, you know, you're never going to be as comfortable as you are in a climate-controlled home. You can go into an apartment or a house with central air and central heating and turn the thermostat to the exact temperature you want, and that's that. You don't have to worry about that. You're never going to get that level of control in a van. Even the fanciest high-end vans can't really approach that. You're still going to have a pretty wide variation in temperature, so you need to change your mindset into into what comfort is. Comfort isn't perfect. Comfort means it's above 50. <laughs> I mean, that's how I look at it. It's above 15, it's above 50, meaning that I can be in my van wearing a sweater or a jacket or whatever, and I can function. To me, that is my new definition of comfort. And that's where I set my goal on all my heating in my van. So I've got an Olympian Wave 3 and a Chinese diesel heater. I'll use the Olympian Wave 3 if I'm only going to be there for a bit and it's very quick and stuff. And I don't want to have exhaust coming out of the van. And that won't heat up the van super toasty. You're never going to come in after a cold day and be like, ooh, it's so nice and toasty in here. You're going to be like, oh, it's less cold in here. And that's the goal. Chinese diesel heater, same thing, although you can actually heat up your van quite a bit with a Chinese diesel heater, but you're using more fuel, you're creating more exhaust, and it's probably best to set it colder than you normally would and wear more clothing. In my opinion, anything above 50 is kind of a waste. You do what you're going to do, of course, but for me, if I set it the temperature at 50 or as close to that as I can get, the sleeping bag does the rest. And then, yeah, in the morning, I'm a little chilled, and I'll turn up the heat a bit. And, you know, actually, what I'll do is make coffee on the stove, which adds enough heat that, you know, it's much more comfortable. Anyway, keep in mind that staying warm is not the same as staying comfortable. Now, with all this stuff, you're going to get condensation. Body heaters, Olympian Wave 3s, catalytic heaters are going to fill your vans with with condensation. But even if you don't have that, you're going to have condensation problems in the van. And it's not... It's not a flaw. I see people like uh, saying, oh, what did I do wrong? My van's filling up with condensation. No, that's just a part of life, living in a small space with hard surfaces and cold temperatures. You exhale a lot of water, and it has to go somewhere. So you're either going to vent it out, or it's going to hit your hard surfaces and turn to water. Most of the time, you're going to run into this on the front windshield. And for those who have done really cold winter camping, 
they know the struggle of scraping the inside of the front windshield instead of the outside because that's where all the water went. Just know that it's going to happen and have a plan to deal with it because if you don't deal with it, you can run into mold and mildew issues. And the best way to deal with it, of course, is ventilation. And then you get into the struggle of, but if I'm ventilating, I'm letting all the heat out. And yes, (laughs) yes, you are, because the heat is carrying the moist air out. So you actually do want to run more heat than is technically necessary to heat the inside because you also have to heat that air to get it out of there. It's a big deal. Don't ignore condensation. All right, there's also a few weird things that aren't necessarily obvious that I have run into. One is temperature stratification, which is that up at the top of the van, it's 80 degrees, and at the floor of the van, it's 30 degrees. So my feet are cold, my head is hot, and I don't know what to do. (laughs) This is definitely a problem in, in a small space like this, and fans can help, but they can also sometimes make it worse depending on where the air is blowing. So expect that. It's going to happen. The only way I know to avoid that is to actually use hydronic heat under the floor. If you're building out a new van, you could put your heat under the floor. There are systems for this. They're a bit complicated. They're expensive. They're a little difficult to maintain if something goes wrong. But if you can get the heat to come from the floor and go up, you will eliminate the stratification problem. Plastic gets brittle in the cold. So if you're doing a no-build or budget build and you have those Stirlite plastic containers with the drawers, you know you get at Walmart, it's like a little plastic chest of drawers, perfect for van life. But in the winter, if you grab one of those drawers and pull quickly, the handle might just as easily snap off as open the drawer. And I've had this happen to me. So usually during the first season that people are out camping in the winter, that's when they learn that they've got these plastics that just won't do for winter. So be prepared for that. And if you are using that stuff, just be very gentle with it because it acts different when it's cold. And another thing that I just have to mention that probably everybody knows now, if you have a diesel engine and you have a big tank and you've been driving a lot, make sure to add diesel fuel additive or make sure you know where your fuel came from. It is a big problem where someone will fill up in Phoenix and drive straight north and then get somewhere freezing cold and their diesel fuel will gel or start depositing wax. And that's a bad thing. (laughs) That is your engine is not going to start or run. Your diesel heater isn't going to start or run and you have to wait until everything warms up. It is not good. There are additives that take care of that. Also, if you're just going to leave your van for a while, like a few months, add some additive to the fuel. They have it for gasoline and diesel. It just keeps the fuel from going bad. And it will normally take much longer than that. But, hey, why not be safe? You don't know what could happen. And as far as diesel goes, you should be treating it anytime you're going to leave it because diesel has a separate problem of algae. Yes, there's algae that likes to eat diesel. And that can totally mess you up. So... There are some thoughts for doing the winter van life thing. I absolutely encourage everybody to get out there. And winter doesn't mean you have to go camping in the snow. You can go camping in Arizona, too. But it's still going to get cold, and you have to be prepared for it. Tech Talk. So OEM versus aftermarket versus rebuilt. If you've ever been in an accident, you've seen all all this paperwork that comes from the insurance company and the body shop and... They mention OEM and aftermarket and all that. So let's let's just decipher all that so folks know what we're talking about here. OEM stands for Original Equipment Manufacturer. 
So if you have a Ford Transit and let's say the radiator blew for whatever reason, you could go to Ford and get an OEM radiator, which would be exactly the same radiator that was installed in the van in the first place. But being a dealer, being a Ford product, those are expensive. So there are other companies that make other radiators that will work, and they're often cheaper. But there are also other companies that make other radiators that are higher performance and actually cost more. And all of those made by other companies we call aftermarket. Now, aftermarket is where most people are getting their parts from these days. And it's a little tricky because there's really good aftermarket, sometimes better than OEM, and there's really garbage aftermarket. And one thing you encounter is uh, a perfect example of this is with headlights headlights break getting a little fender bender break a headlight okay you get the new cover in some of the aftermarket brands were notorious for the clear lens turning yellow over time i I had a toyota that i had this happen to two years after the accident i had a, a yellow headlight and it was because the insurance company forced me to use aftermarket they would not pay for oem and that takes us to rebuilt Now, in many cases, rebuilt's going to be all you can get. For some components on some vehicles, they don't have OEM. For example, my NV200, 2014 NV200, it was not possible to buy an OEM air conditioning compressor. It just wasn't a thing. Even though they were still making the van and it probably still had that same compressor, it was not possible to order one. So what they did was they sold rebuilt ones, which are ones that have failed and have been taken apart and fixed, basically. Rebuilt parts are usually a good value, but you run a risk that the person who rebuilt it didn't do a very good job. And there are many cases of people getting a rebuilt water pump, for example, and then having it die 25 miles down the road. I wouldn't know anything about that, would I? Yeah, so you often have to give them the old part. Uh, That's called a core. And it's the same thing with batteries, too. But if you go buy a rebuilt water pump, they will ask for the old one back. And if you don't give it back, there's like a $15 fee or something like that. So given all those definitions, what should you get for your van? And the answer is, it depends, it depends, it depends. There's no great solid answer. The The wisdom is usually that OEM is best unless you're doing some off-road modifications or something like that, but it's always more expensive, sometimes twice as much. And this is why companies like Rock Auto exist. Although I've I've had bad experiences with them lately. It looks to me like Rock Auto is selling seconds and used parts, and I don't understand what's going on, but I've had trouble with them, so I can no longer recommend them. Anyway, I hope that helps you understand this. OEM, aftermarket, and rebuilt different things, different purposes. But, but if you do a bit of research, you'll find the right thing. Tales from the road. So, uh, as you might expect, I have some tales from my trip to Antarctica. But this was not from that. This tale was at the end of my trip when I'm in Buenos Aires. So, I took a ferry from Uruguay to Buenos Aires after a visit in Uruguay that you will hear about later. And I just wanted to get some lunch. That was all. I got off the ferry. It was in Puerto Madero, which is a little section of Buenos Aires. It's it's, it's where the the ferries leave from. And uh, just thought, you know, there must be some lunch around here. So I pulled up Google and, you know, like, hey, where is there good lunch around here? And one of the top rated places was right around the corner. So I was like, perfect. And I get there and I look at the address and it's right. And I look at where I am. 
and it's a church. And I'm thinking, is this like a soup kitchen? I mean, what, what's going on here? And there's a sign on the door, only in Spanish, and I can just make it out. And it says something like, press here for the restaurant. And I'm feeling a little cheeky at this point, so I'm like, all right, sure. So I press the button, and someone says, hola. And I'm like, you know, hello, inglés, por favor. And uh, uno momento. And then somebody comes and speaks to me in an English that's very understandable, but has a Swedish accent, which is not something I expected in Buenos Aires. And I said, um, hi, uh, I would like to have lunch. And he says, okay, sure, sure, sure. And uh, he comes and opens the door, and I'm standing in the entryway of a church. And he says, welcome, welcome. And he, he beckons me to follow him, and I follow him. And then I'm in a restaurant, uh, a fairly large restaurant in the church. And I don't mean like, <laughs> I don't mean like in the church basement or attached to the church. I mean, I'm in the church. I look to one side and there's a row of pews and stained glass and the altar and all that. And then I, I know churches have names for everything. and I don't know what part of the church I was in, but basically behind the pews under where the choir would be, there's rows and rows of tables. It's a restaurant. And then he says, um, would you like to eat inside or outside? <laughs> like, having seen this, I figure, all right, let's go outside. So he takes me outside, and I'm in this massive courtyard with maybe 13, 14 tables alone. <laughs> There's nobody else out there. And he sets me up under this tree, and there are literally leaves falling on the table. I mean, I'm completely outside. And uh, sits me down, and then he leaves. <laughs> and for this moment, I, I realize that I'm sitting in a Swedish church in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I'm about to have lunch. It's a very strange moment. So they bring the menu, and the menu is in two languages, thankfully. Spanish and Swedish. And all the foods are Swedish. It's a Swedish restaurant. And apparently it's a highly rated one, maybe because it's the only one. And so I'm looking at this menu and realizing that I've seen a lot of these items before. And I, I'm not a big Swedish food aficionado or anything like that. I have been to Sweden, but I, that, that's not where I saw these foods. Where I have seen these foods before is at Ikea. I'm basically looking at the Ikea lunch menu in a church. <laughs> now, it wasn't exactly. And yes, I got the meatballs, because of course, what else am I going to get? So I had the meatballs and lignanberry and the potatoes. And it was a very surreal moment. And of course, the food was much higher quality than Ikea. And they brought me all kinds of just pickled, pickled things and cheeses and stuff. I don't even know what it was. But it was a very interesting, delightful meal, one that I had alone. And um, you just never know what you're going to find out there. Sometimes it really is worth it to just take a moment and press the button. Place to visit. Now let's back up a step. So on my way back from Antarctica, I made it so that I had a little bit of time to explore. And I'd never been to Uruguay. And for some reason, I've always been fascinated by Uruguay. Maybe it's because of the name. Maybe it's because it's such a tiny country. 
I don't know, but I decided I would like to try to go there. And I found that there was this ferry that left from Buenos Aires and takes about 90 minutes to get to Uruguay. Now, it doesn't go to the capital. Well, actually, it does go to the capital, but that trip's four and a half hours. Capital of Uruguay is Montevideo, or as some say, Montevideo. But that's not where I was going. I went to Colonia del Sacramento, Colony of the Sacrament, which is this old fort town that was in constant dispute, being fought over by the Portuguese and Spanish for centuries. Finally, the Spanish won, and when Uruguay got its freedom, it became part of Uruguay, obviously. And it is just the most lovely place I've ever been. I mean, I absolutely loved it there. Now, Uruguay, Argentina, this part of South America, if you're thinking anything Mexico put that aside. This is not anything like Mexico. I mean, sure, there's a couple things here, and yes, they speak Spanish, but they speak Rio Platanese Spanish. It's a different Spanish. They say pocho instead of pollo and things like that. And of course, when you try to learn Spanish in the U.S., it's almost always Mexican Spanish, so I had some trouble there. Not that I know enough Spanish to not be in trouble. At any rate, if you are ever in Buenos Aires, or if you're ever driving through South America, see if you can take some time to spend a day at Colonia del Sacramento. It's a walled city, and it's ancient, and they have taken this whole big section and left it alone. Now, there are shops and stores and Airbnbs and stuff in there, but it's all local stuff. You won't see any brand names that you've heard of or anything like that. The streets are these rough stones... And you can climb the fort walls and overlook the ocean, although it's not the ocean, it's actually a big river. The Rio Plat is the widest river in the world, according to some definitions. That's all a bit weird. And just wander around and have a great day. It's, it's one of these places where everything you look at is a postcard. You've got a lighthouse in the middle. You've got these walls. I mean, you really have to see pictures to understand Colonia del Sacramento. It's also very quiet and not all that crowded, at least when I was there. I was there at the beginning of the season. I'm sure it gets more crowded on weekends in the busy season. Now, they do allow cars there, but you don't see that many of them. What's more popular is actually golf carts. And if you go to Avis there, they will rent you a golf cart, and you can just tool around. You can go to your hotel, park it there, tool around the town, go back. It was awesome. Uh, I had a great time. The food was great. I ate at the Sunset Grill where I had, I think it's pronounced a chivite, chivito. Oh, I probably screwed that up, but I can't look anything up right now, <laughs> which is the native kind of local food that people eat. It is this incredibly massive sandwich that's like a club sandwich on steroids. It has steak and chicken and cheese and everything and ham and all that all piled up in this big sandwich, and it is delicious if you like that kind of thing. This is not a great place if you're a vegetarian or a vegan. Uruguayans eat more beef per capita than anybody else in the world. And there's steak everywhere, which to me sounds yummy, but I understand for some of you that would not. <laughs> and there was a, a little museum that kind of told the history. There's a lot of fossils in the area. But there was this other aspect that I'm going to try to explain, and I don't know that I ever will. The entire place felt to me like it was a video game. 
like it was manufactured. It had all the trappings of normal life, but everything was just a bit off. Like there were these trees that were growing in places where you wouldn't expect them to grow in real life. And the leaves didn't match the trunks and the flowers didn't match the leaves. The birds were weird, too. They were bigger than you would expect and more colorful. And there was grass growing everywhere, and it was apparently mowed grass all the way down to the water, like on the beach. It was, it, you have to see pictures again, but is somebody actually mowing this grass? Do they let uh, goats come through? I, I don't know. But it was like a video game where all these details that video games don't ever get right also weren't right here, except they are. It's a real place. Uh, it, at night, it looked like Tales from Monkey Island. It had all these lamps glowing and all these old storefronts. And Anyway, I loved it. So, put it on your list. Colonia del Sacramento. Definitely a touristy place, but a touristy place in the best sense, where you can get a taste of Uruguay, feel completely comfortable, and, and just have some peace for a short amount of time. resource recommendation so while we were in antarctica we were relying very heavily on weather reports and you know the the ships they have weather facts and things like that they have much more detailed reports than the public get usually but being an expedition they they communicated with us and they were trying to explain weather conditions to us and rather than use all the shorthand that they used on the bridge they used an app called windy.com so that's windy.com just like it sounds there's there's apps and there's a website and windy.com you may have seen when it first came out everybody was sharing it because it displayed wind in a way no one has ever done before at least for the mass public and this is a great app if you're trying to predict weather patterns so for us with this app we were able to see that there were big storms coming through the drake passage and we were able to actually sneak in the middle of two storms for you what it's really useful for is believe it or not wind (laughs) that's why it's called windy.com if you take a look at it you will instantly understand how it works colors dictate temperature or strength and then there are these little lines that show you which way the wind is blowing and they're animated so if the wind is going in a circular motion you can see that or from west to east you can see that however it is you can see it and there's nothing else really like this I've seen. I've seen other apps that will say, oh, your wind speed is predicted to be this, and so on and so forth, but this is very visual, and that helps you internalize it and what you're going to go through. And this is, you know, we're in December here, and winds can be a problem, especially if you're going to set up a long-term camp with awnings and stuff. So taking a peek at windy.com wouldn't be a bad idea. I'll have a link in the show notes, but honestly, it's it's windy.com. <laughs> you don't need to click on the link. It's right there. <laughs> well, folks, thank you for listening to this little bit of an odd episode. <laughs> episode 147. Thanks for putting up with me. Next week, things should get back to total normal, whatever that ever was. <laughs> Music, as always, is by Simon Wag. If you'd like to get a hold of me, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember the words of that famous philosopher, Anonymous. Have stories to tell, not stuff to show. <laughs>